Matthew chapter 4. Let's, let's dive in here uh, to the word of God today. So we're going to start here in uh, 23, verse uh, 23 through the end of the chapter. We'll, we'll look at these here again. I'll give you a brief recap of what we looked at last week, and then we'll move on through what uh, the Lord has for us today. It says, and he went through, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread out through Judea, through Judea, Samaria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And the crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, as we continue working our way through this text and looking at the gospel of the kingdom. I pray that even as we sing those songs today and as we meditate on these truths, the truths of the kingdom of God, Lord, that your light would shine into our understanding. Lord, that you would uh, give illumination to your revelation and that we would walk in the light of your word just as your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, help us, Lord, to live faithfully for you as your people in this time, this week. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a grace that you have bestowed upon us and we cherish it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now here it says, of course, that Jesus is, is teaching and preaching and healing these three things that he's going around doing and, and that as he's doing it, his fame is growing and spreading and so that great crowds are coming out to follow him. And it says that he's preaching what's called the gospel of the kingdom. And last week we looked at uh, six points of what the kingdom of God is. And here it says that, uh, and, and as it mentions here, the, the kingdom, this is the fourth time that the kingdom of God is mentioned here in the gospel of Matthew. And this is the major theme, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as, as Matthew calls it, is the major theme of his gospel. In fact, 55 times he uses the word kingdom in just these short 28 chapters. So literally on every single page as we work through Matthew's gospel, we're going to be reading about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's this Greek word called the basileia, the basileia of heaven or the basileia of God. Now you have to recall that Matthew is primarily gearing his gospel towards a primarily Jewish audience. And in fact, there is some... Uh, scholars who hold that Matthew pinned uh, his gospel in Hebrew, in fact, rather than Greek, as his first audience would have been first century Jews. It is a very uh, Jewish uh, gospel, especially if, as you contrast it with the other ones that came later, especially John's gospel, which is definitely geared toward a Greek audience in the way that the Greeks thought. So why is this important to us? here 2,000 years later. Well, because as Matthew writes to a primarily Jewish audience, he assumes, and rightfully so, that his audience is well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. 
that his audience knows their Torah, that his audience knows the, the first five books of the Bible, that his audience knows the, the prophetic writings of Isaiah, that they're very acquainted with the promises that God had made of establishing his kingdom, and that he, he roots this story in that Old Testament narrative. So that as we saw as Matthew opens his gospel, he does so by doing what? Declaring that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Essentially the fulfillment, the one who is going to fulfill all of the promises that God had made to our people. That's the message that Matthew is preaching. And so for us, as we work through this, as, as Gentiles, now the majority of us, some 2,000 years removed from this story, it's important for us to also be anchored in and saturated in the Old Testament narrative, the Old Testament story, because Jesus' story is the fulfillment of what started all the way back in the Garden of Eden some 6,000 years ago. It's this continuation of this story, this story of the kingdom of God. Now, last week I began by asking you the question, what is the gospel? We see here in our verse, verse 23, that the gospel is mentioned. And so I began by asking you, what is the gospel? If somebody asked you what the gospel is, what would you tell them? And we talked about how probably most of us would say something about who Jesus is, what he did, that he's the son of God, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again to give us new life, and that all who believe in him in faith, turning from sin, will receive his gift of salvation. Amen. And we hold to that. And that is true. Everything I just communicated to you is the truth. But I, I, I drew your attention to the fact that that could not be the message that Jesus is preaching because Jesus is still living his life. He hasn't yet gone to the cross. He hasn't died for sin. He hasn't risen to give new life. He hasn't ascended to the right hand of the Father. But yet, nevertheless, it says that he is preaching a gospel. But he's preaching a gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of of God. And so we looked last week about this kingdom of God. What is it? And it's so important for us to know what it is. This is why we're spending a few weeks looking at it, because it's, as Matthew talks about the kingdom, he's talking to a people who have a very set idea on what that is. Why? Because they're rooted and grounded in the Old Testament scriptures in the Old Testament story. They had a very firm idea in their mind about what the kingdom of God is. And so my hope is that as we continue to move through Matthew's gospel and see kingdom, 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 kingdom over and over and over again, that you can also likewise have that very firm idea in your mind about what the kingdom of God is. Because if we just read this and sort of not really wait on it or just really think about what it is and just sort of, you know... I don't know, sometimes when, when I read the Bible, I hate to admit it, but sometimes I can read three or four pages and then like all of a sudden come to myself and say, what did I just read? Has that ever happened to anybody else? And then I have to go back and reread it because you, you can kind of read 
something and at the same time be thinking, oh, I need to get milk from the grocery store and oh, I forgot that I need to fix this thing. At that. The, I mean, that happens to me all the time. It's just sort of the nature of the world that we live in and then our phones are always going off and distracting us. And so the point is that we can come to a phrase like the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and just not really think about what it is. Not really consider the, the truth that is behind a statement like that. And so last week and this week, I'm giving you 12 points on the kingdom of God so that we can understand what it is that Jesus is preaching. You see, the, the truths that I commun- communicated to you about who Jesus was, the life that he lived, the, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, salvation through grace and faith in him, that is how we enter into the kingdom. That's the gospel of salvation. And I thank the Lord for the gospel of salvation. We need salvation. But the, the, the message of the kingdom encompasses something before that and something after that. And we've reduced the gospel down to this little tiny sliver And what I'm hoping for us as a church to be able to see is that the gospel encompasses actually all of life. And not just all of our lives personally, but really all of the universe, the rule and reign of God over all, as we sang about this morning. And so let's let's look at these quickly here. The the first six that I gave you last week, I'm going to do my best to not end up preaching them again, although I'm so fired up about each one of them. But the first is that, and I, I deliberately made sure to put all of them on the screen at the same time to hopefully force me to move through them quickly. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. The scriptures declare to us that there's only one sovereign of the universe, and that is God. The Lord reigns. In fact, you don't get from the very first page of the Bible, from the very first sentence of the Bible that just absolutely unequivocally introduces the main character in the drama of eternity and the drama of the universe, which is God himself. You see, you and I, we are uh, not the main character of this story. We're what they call in uh, Hollywood we're extras, okay? He is the main character. He is the main actor. He is the one that is, as the scripture declares to us, working all things in accordance with his will. And he, through his grace, is drawing us up into his story and what he is doing. And we can be a part of it. But he is the one who is ruling and he is the one who is reigning. The rule and the reign of God. Number two, the kingdom of God is the dominant theme of the entire Bible. That God is absolutely sovereign over all things. That he is the creator. That every single atom and some subatomic particle belongs to him. 
We see how this story unfolds throughout the Old Testament of God making a promise to David that there one day will be a descendant who will sit on his throne, the throne of David, and rule the nations of the world. The prophets begin to to talk about this king who is coming. And I read to you from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. I'm going to read to you that passage again. And again, this is not a, a Christmas verse. This is something much more. Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born. Amen. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government, his rule, and his reign, and of peace, there will be no end. That means from shore to shore. That means from, from coast to coast, from north to south. That the kingdom reign of Christ will encompass the whole earth. That's awesome. Of the increase of his government and where his government goes, what comes with it? Peace. Peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will be the the heir to David's throne through the promise that God had made to David to establish it and uphold it with justice. So not only will there be peace, but there will be justice. We live in a world that is so perverted, justice. We live in a world that calls dismembering babies in their mother's womb reproductive justice. We live in such an upside-down world, but the promise of Isaiah and the promise of the kingdom is that where he rules and where he reigns, that there will be peace and justice. Justice was done last summer as Roe v. Wade was overturned. That was justice. Amen. But as that was overturned, did you see what there was also a lack of? There's a lack of peace. But where people submit to the rule and reign of Christ, there will be peace and justice. And it goes on to say, with righteousness. That's people who love justice. From this time forth and forevermore. So from the time that he comes into the world and establishes his kingdom, it will continue to grow and increase the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end from this time forth and forevermore. And then he concludes by saying, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That that this kingdom being established isn't on you and it isn't on me. It's not solely resting on our shoulders. No, it rests on his shoulders. And he is the one with his zeal and his passion who will rule the nations of the world. Amen. Number three, the kingdom of God is the dominant theme of Jesus and the apostles. We looked at Jesus 650 times in the New Testament. It's called the Lord. The Lord of what? The Lord of his kingdom. Of course, this was a radical idea at the time because the dominant phrase even stamped on their own currency was not that Jesus is Lord, but that Caesar was Lord. 
But here the apostles, this, this band of 11 people that Jesus gives the great commission to, they show up with another message. And, and even Paul stands before Caesar in Rome and declares, there's a king above you, king. There's a Lord above you, Lord. There is a throne above your throne that Jesus is Lord. And every time that the New Testament calls Jesus Lord, again, this phrase laden with so much meaning, it's saying that he rules over all. It's asserting the kingdom rule of God, the dominant theme of Jesus and the apostles. Number four, the kingdom of God is not of this world. We looked at the the exchange between Jesus as he stood before Pilate, who represented the Roman government, the most powerful government at the time. And that Pilate asked if Jesus was a king, and Jesus admits to being a king, but he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he says, the reason my, my disciples aren't waging a war right now against you is because my kingdom isn't of this world. Meaning that that the, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. That the kingdom of God is not advanced by the might of the sword. That the kingdom of God is not conversion by sword. But that the kingdom of God is conversion by preaching and proclaiming the gospel, which is the sword of the spirit. There is a sword. It's not a physical sword that we wield, but we must wield the sword. In fact, the vision that... John has of Jesus in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, that that Jesus is riding on a white horse and he's wielding a sword, but the sword is not in his hand. In fact, the sword is coming from his mouth, saying that he rules the nations not with some sort of physical sword or military might or that he overthrows the nations with bazookas and AK-47s, but that he rules the nations through his word. Through his word. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It's not like this world. The greatest among you in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, must be the servant of all. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. It's an upside down kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. But number five, we saw very clearly that though the kingdom of God is not of this world... It absolutely is here in this world right now. Presently, right now. Jesus himself said it, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John also said the exact same thing. John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I showed you from Matthew 12, which we'll see uh, later on as we move through Matthew, but That Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That Jesus says, the the evidence for the fact that I have brought the kingdom of God to earth is the fact that that I have authority over the dark dominion of Satan. That God's rule supersedes Satan's rule. That God's reign is is above whatever reign and authority that Satan might have. Amen. Amen. That the kingdom is in the world. I want to show you something in Acts chapter 2. If you'll flip over there with me. It's so important that you see this. Because as we move through Matthew's gospel and as Jesus begins preaching the Sermon on the Mount, 
He's going to be talking about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. What it looks like to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so if we're going to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, first we must believe that the kingdom is here now. That, that it's not just some future reality. Amen. It's a present reality. Amen. And in fact, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, there have been those who historically have argued, which I completely disagree with, who historically have argued that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not for us now. It doesn't apply to us now, they say. It applies to the future kingdom age. Therefore, it's not for us. We don't even have to pay attention to it because they don't believe the kingdom of God is here now. And so therefore, Jesus talking about living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven doesn't apply because that's only for a future kingdom age. I want to show you that absolutely it does apply. We don't just pull out Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and say we don't need this anymore. No, it absolutely does apply because the kingdom, though it is not of this world, it is in this world. And let me show you from Acts chapter 2. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. This is known as the day the church was birthed as Jesus ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit upon his church. And I want to draw your attention to part of Peter's sermon. Starting in verse 24. We sang about this today. He is Lord. He is Lord. He has risen from the dead, and he is Lord, that, that his resurrection actually means something, his resurrection and ascension means something. Here in verse 24 of Acts 2, it says that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen. For David says concerning him, here he quotes from Psalm 16, and, and Peter is saying what David was saying is about Jesus risen from the dead. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So now David writes this, and, and Peter is saying that this that David wrote is about Jesus risen from the dead. And here in verse 29, he gives commentary on what David was saying. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, again, the throne of David is, is the key thing here, he foresaw, David foresaw, and spoke about what? The resurrection of Christ. He's saying that the, the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven is the fulfillment of the prophetic word that God made to David to establish a kingdom and put a king on David's throne. The kingdom of God, Jesus reigning from the throne of David, is a present 
reality. Sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Verse 31, David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. His conclusion, his concluding statement of his sermon, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The kingdom of God is not of this world, but it is absolutely in this world. It is a present reality. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us, those of us who believe in Christ, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved son. If you believe in Christ, you have been ransomed out of darkness, you have been taken from the domain of Satan and brought into the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of God. You are part of the kingdom of God today. Amen. Number six. And then we'll be done with last week, number six. <laughs> the kingdom of God started small, but it ends big. Do you remember I, I read to you the, of course you remember, you never forget anything I ever say, of course. I read to you the parables that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. He gave two in Matthew 13. He says one of them is the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. It's one of the smallest seeds, but you plant it in the garden and, it, and the, a mustard seed actually goes, grows not into a plant, but a whole tree, a mustard tree. It becomes one of the largest plants in the garden. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like leaven that you, you put into a lump of dough. It's just the tiniest bit, but it permeates the whole loaf. The picture being that 2,000 years ago, the kingdom of God was planted was planted there in the nation of Israel, what was planted by Jesus and established by his apostles. And though it started small, though it started and seemed what was so insignificant, and we'll be celebrating that start of the kingdom of God in a few weeks as we celebrate Christmas, it didn't start in some castle somewhere. It started in a barn in Bethlehem, born to peasant parents, one of the most insignificant in the world's eyes events of that day. There was no newspaper headlines that went out. There was no journalist there. But it was the beginning of the greatest kingdom 
that will ever be established. When Jesus ascends into heaven, there's just a handful of people there. 11 disciples, 120 gathered on the day of Pentecost. 120. Think about how small and insignificant. But over time, the kingdom grows, the kingdom grows, the kingdom grows. So that today, those who name the name of Christ are literally, those who call Jesus Lord in profession, now we can talk about whether they live it out or not, but in profession today, one-third the human race calls Jesus Lord. Now I would argue that a very large majority of that needs to make their profession a reality. But from 120 to 2,000 years later, one-third the human race. And there's still a lot of kingdom growing yet to be done. The kingdom starts small, but it ends big. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, it starts really small. And his disciples, even before he ascends into heaven, they're expecting a big splash. They're expecting a big overthrow. They're expecting Jesus to lead some sort of armed insurrection. But the kingdom of God doesn't fall out of heaven all at once like some military force. It grows and grows and grows and grows. It grows at almost an imperceptible rate. I talked to you about my kids that are trying to grow oak trees right now out of acorns. These, these massive oak trees that we have here, hundreds of years old. Their growth imperceivable to the human eye and the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like that. Well, let's move on today. Let's look at number seven. The kingdom of God is not limited to heaven. Now some people get tripped up on this because in Matthew's gospel he calls the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven. He refers to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven. And so some people wrongly assume that the kingdom of God is that Christ rules in heaven but it's only up there. That his rule and reign has nothing going on down here. And again, the reason why Matthew calls the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven is primarily, again, because of his audience being a Jewish audience. They were very, very careful to keep the commandment of not taking the Lord's name in vain. And so heaven in his day was a substitute for the word God or the, the covenant name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. And so you'll recall when uh, the... Uh, prodigal son goes astray and he comes home and he confesses to his father. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. What's he saying there? Not that he's sinned against the angels, not that he's sinned against sort of this spiritual realm, but it's used as a substitute for the name of God. And so we need to understand that the kingdom of God, his rule and his reign is not limited to heaven. The text for this, of course, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus himself says, all authority, 
all authority, all rule, all reign in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Ephesians 1.20, where Paul says that Christ has been seated far above all rule, all dominion, all power, above every name that is named, not only in this age, Paul says, but also in the age to come. Not just saying that it's some future thing, but it's right here, right now. Amen? All authority in heaven and on earth. Psalm 2, God promises to give to his son the nations of the world as his inheritance. That Christ, having died and rose again and ascended to heaven, has received from the Father the inheritance of the nations of the world, the kingdoms of the world. You'll recall that when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, that Satan said, all you have to do is bow down and worship me and I will give you what? All of the kingdoms of the world. You see, when Adam sinned, he handed over dominion to Satan. God had given dominion to Adam, go and, and have dominion and fill the earth with my image bearers. But when Adam sinned, he had the dominion over to Satan. Satan had dominion and tells Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms. It's a shortcut. It's a bypass. Skip the cross. Jesus, of course, what does he say? It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. This issue of the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of the world, is at the heart of what Jesus accomplished. So Jesus now ascending into heaven, Acts, uh, Psalm chapter 2 says that he, having accomplished his work, will receive from the Father the inheritance of the kingdoms of the world. Amen. Jesus didn't take the shortcut. And in fact, when John writes the book of Revelation, flip over there with me quickly, the last book of your Bible, Revelation chapter 1. As John is giving his introduction on who Jesus is, his resume is very impressive. Verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Galatia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, here's Jesus' resume, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John, in his introduction to the seven churches about the things that must soon take place, he doesn't say that Jesus is going to be, at the end of history, the rulers of the kings of the earth. John says that Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Christ is king. In case you missed everything I just said, read the big banner behind me. Christ is king now. 
He doesn't just rule in heaven. It says he rules the kings of the earth. Above all rule, all dominion, all authority, all power, over every name that is named. Christ is king. The issue is not whether or not Christ will be king. The issue is whether or not people will recognize and submit to his kingship and lordship. That's the issue. And it's the church's job to go and preach the kingdom, which is Christ is king, repent, receive your king, serve your king. That's the message. That's the gospel. Turn to him, receive grace, receive peace, receive forgiveness, repent of your sins, be ushered into the kingdom of God, the kingdom that will never end, the kingdom that, that is growing and growing and growing and will cover the kings of the earth. And the message of Psalm 2 is to the kings of the earth, serve the king of kings or fall under the judgment of his rule and his reign. That he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Those who will not submit to his rule and his reign will suffer under his judgment. Christ is king. Christ is king over every mayor in our country, nation, every mayor of every city. Christ is king over our mayor. Christ is king over our governor, every governor in all 50 states. Christ is king over every house member of the House of Representatives. Christ is king over every senator. Christ is king over the vice president. Christ is king over President Biden. The message of the church is to be a prophetic voice that declares the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. And where the kings of the earth, where the rulers of this earth are not serving their king, we say repent and serve Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ's reign is total. What is he Lord over? He is Lord over all. There's a man named Abraham Kuyper. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a theologian and a journalist of the Netherlands. But in 1901 to 1905, he served as the prime minister of the Netherlands. He was a distinctly Christian man, and he, he served as the prime minister of the Netherlands as a Christian prime minister. And this is what he says. He said, and I quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Mine. Christ is king of the nations of the earth. Amen. Number eight, the kingdom of God is an unshakable and unstoppable kingdom. Hebrews 12, 28 says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Listen, the kingdoms of the world will be shaken. The kingdoms of the world are being shaken. As the kingdoms of the world, as Psalm 2 says, try to align themselves against God and the Messiah, that he who sits in the heavens, what does he do? He laughs. Why? Because he rules the kingdoms of the world. 
But we belong to a kingdom that, that supersedes the kingdoms of our nation. And though our nation will be shaken by the King of kings and Lord of lords, we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen. Which means it's ever more important for us who live in an earthly kingdom that is being shaken and should be shaken that we know how to live as citizens of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, too many times we live in the kingdom of God, but we still live as citizens of the world. And if we're going to not be shaken when the world around us is shaken, we must live as kingdom citizens, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. In Daniel chapter 2, the prophetic vision that King Nebuchadnezzar saw... Of, of the statue that was set up representing the, the four kingdoms that were and that, uh, that it ended with the kingdom of Rome, that in those days, the word goes out. The, the vision that he saw was this, this statue set up and then a rock is cut out of a mountain, a rock cut out without hands. And this rock comes and it destroys those kingdoms destroys those wicked systems of government. But that rock that was cut out without hands, it doesn't just stop with destroying the, that wicked system of totalitarianism and, and oppressing people that Babylon, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans represented, but that that rock cut out without hands in that vision, it grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And this is what Daniel says as he commentates and interprets that dream. He says, in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand Forever. What am I saying? I'm saying that the kingdom of God is going to topple the totalitarian systems of this world until the kingdom of God fills the whole earth. Amen. And we are a citizen of that kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. What did Jesus say? Matthew 16, 18. I will what? Build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, all of heaven's forces cannot stop what God is doing in the earth. The apostles believed this, and they turned the, their world upside down for Jesus Christ. The problem with the church today is we don't believe this. We don't believe that Jesus is sitting on the throne. We don't believe that he's ruling the nations. We don't believe that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Instead, we retreat, 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 until darkness covers the earth. We must believe the clear word of God Amen. that darkness cannot conquer light. Amen. But if we hide the light, if we retreat with the light instead of running into the darkness with the light, we invite the secularization of our world. We invite the secularization of our culture where God's people don't stand up and speak up. 
Not for the kingdoms of this world, but for the kingdom of God. Unshakable, unstoppable. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom of God is in the world. The kingdom of God is taking over the world and that God's kingdom is toppling every idol that stands in its way and that he is placing every enemy under his feet. uh, Peter quoted from David, Psalm 110. He quoted that in in his message. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What is happening in human history is that God is making a footstool out of every enemy that exalts its name against Christ. Amen. Number nine, number nine, number nine. We're getting close here. Number nine, the kingdom of God is good news. It's good news. Matthew 4.23, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. This is good news that Christ reigns. This is good news that Christ is king. This is good news that this is God's world. That this is not the devil's world. Amen. Some of you will will say, well, there's this verse that says that Satan is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4. Satan is the God of the world, it says. So, So how can I stand up and say that Christ is the king of the world? That God is the king of kings and lord of lords? Well, it's very easy. It's very simple. The, the, the word here in that passage, that one little passage, is the Greek word aeon, which is better translated age, not world. God, Satan is not the king of this world. He's not the God of this world. He was the God of that age until Jesus showed up, bound him, plundered his house, took the keys of death, hell, and the grave, ascended into heaven, poured out his spirit on the church... And now we have the run of the place down here. And that everywhere the gospel goes, it is victorious. Where God's people believe that Christ is king, that he rules and reigns. The gospel is victorious. His kingdom advances. This is not Satan's world. Jesus said in John 12, 31, as he heads to the cross, he says, now, now judgment is upon this world. Now the prince of the world will be cast out. As Jesus is heading to the cross, he says, I am going to the cross and I am going to defeat Satan. I am that rock that is going to crush these evil systems and my kingdom that I establish will conquer and fill the earth. A kingdom of peace, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of justice and you and I are part of that kingdom. Amen. Number 10, Christ the King. How does he rule and reign? He rules through his word. The Great Commission, go into all the world, all authority in heaven and on earth, go into all the world and make disciples of what? Some people, a lot of people, most people, no, make disciples of every nation. Teach them to obey all I have commanded. Christ the King rules through his word. His word, his law is supreme. 
His word is supreme over every other word. His law is supreme over every other law. And so where governments would come in and say, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to preach the gospel here. We stand like the apostles and say, what do we say? We must obey God rather than men. Amen. Why? Because there's a king who supersedes your word and we're going to follow his word. He rules through his word. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Number 11, the kingdom of God is to be our preoccupying thought. It should be what we're thinking about all the time. Why do I say that? Well, what did Jesus say? Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God. We get so busy, so preoccupied with so many other things. But we must, as God's people, seek first his kingdom. What is his kingdom? It is his rule and his reign. How does he rule and reign? He rules and reigns through his word. So if I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, it means that I am seeking to bring every area of my life into total submission to the king of kings and the Lord of lords as written down in his word. To seek first the kingdom of God. This doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the things of our life, the things of our world. It doesn't mean that we just don, you know, monks robes and just walk around, you know, just in like some trance or something. No, but it means in every area of life, in every, every interaction, in every conversation, in every thought that we're trying to submit ourselves to our king, to seek his kingdom first. Our preoccupying thought, the first thing we think in the morning Lord, I'm part of your kingdom. You have brought me into your kingdom by the precious blood of your son. You laid down your life to redeem my life. I belong to you. Help me to live a part of your kingdom today. Help me to obey your word. Help me to put it into practice in my life, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then what does he say? What is the promise? And all these other things will be added unto you as well. He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. He will provide for you. He, he's, the, he's the one who owns everything. And he promises that for those who seek his kingdom, that, that he's going to provide, he's going to bless, he's going to take care of. But we think that we have to seek our own kingdom because we don't believe that he's ruling and reigning on the throne sovereign over all. We don't trust him the way that we should. We think, if, if I'm not looking out for me, who's going to look out for me? Let me tell you, he's the one who's going to look out for you. Seek first his kingdom. It means bringing every activity under his submission, in submission to the rule and the reign of God and his word. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 10.5, bringing every thought captive. Every thought. How, how totality? What, what's the totality of the rule and reign of Christ? It's to be over every thought, over every thought of every human being that Christ's kingdom should rule and reign. That is total. That is supreme. The kingdom of God to be our preoccupying thought. 
Colossians 1.20 says that through Christ, God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're to seek first his kingdom, our preoccupying thought. And finally, everyone exhales a big sigh of relief. Finally. There's only one way to enter into the kingdom of God. There's only one way. There's only one door. Jesus says, he tells Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father but through me. There's only one way to enter the kingdom of God. It's not through your own works. It's not through your own good deeds. It's not through your own righteousness. It's only through faith in Christ. It's only by embracing his cross by clinging to his sacrifice, by holding on to his grace and to his mercy, and by trusting in him and receiving it in faith, it's the only entrance into the kingdom of God. The wonderful news is though that way is narrow, though it is a narrow way, the gospel is proclaimed to all. The gospel goes out to all people, to all nations, to all Uh, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're smart or you're dumb, it goes out to everyone. The gospel message, though it is a narrow way, it is an inclusive gospel. All who would receive him, all who would have faith in him are ushered into his kingdom and brought under his rule and brought under his reign. And if you and I have put our faith in him, we are part of that kingdom. We need to have our our vision for the kingdom of God. It needs to grow. It needs to expand. The good news of the kingdom needs to be our preoccupying thought. Not simply that we are saved. And I thank God that we're saved. But when we're saved, God doesn't just say, all right, great. That's all I needed from you. That's all I had for you. And just usher us up into heaven. No, we're still here. I don't know if you noticed that. Pinch yourself. You're you're still here. No, because God has a purpose for us. God has something for us to do. That, That even in our families, individually, seeking first the kingdom of God, seeing the the fruit of the kingdom born out in our lives, in our families, in our church, by God's grace in our community, to be seeking that, to be working for that is what we are still here to do. Amen. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand this morning as we will spend the next few moments remembering our great Lord and Savior, who died to redeem us, who died to purchase our lives, but also to establish a kingdom, a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken.